Amen. Thank you, Anne, for that ministry and music. Well, I invite you to turn open to uh, Psalm 77. If you haven't done that already, we'll be referring back to that as we go through this psalm. You know, there are many well-meaning people in the world who are absolutely terrible at providing comfort to those who are hurting. Have you ever been really depressed or weighed down with a troubling situation and somebody just came up to you and said, you know, what you really need to do is just cheer up, you know? Life's too short to be sad. Smile. Have you ever tried smiling before? Have you ever had somebody try to comfort you that way? You know, I like to think that people like that usually have good intentions. They, they really just want what's best for you. But at times you might get the sense that they really don't understand just how complex, how deep, how painful your situation just might be. They make it seem like the path to joy and peace is clear-cut and easy to achieve, when in reality it's far more difficult than that. In essence, it doesn't seem like they're being very real. They mean well, but it doesn't seem that they're addressing the situation in a very real manner that's helpful to you. Well, if you've ever felt that way, that people really weren't giving you a real, authentic way to navigate through pain and distress then I would recommend to you Psalm 77. Because here we have a man who is in the midst of deep despair, and yet he doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't try and sell us the ten easy steps to be free from all worry. He's authentic. He's real about his pain. He doesn't hide his feelings. His emotions, as we'll see, and as you may have heard this morning as we read it, they're very raw, they're very real, They aren't politically correct. They aren't always the proper Sunday school answers that we would expect him to say. They're very real. And as we see, this uh, Spirit-inspired psalm will show us how we can be authentic with God about our pain and also how we can work through it and ultimately how we can emerge from it with renewed strength. Ultimately, what I want you to see In this passage, by the time we are done, is that yes, pain is real. Yes, pain can last a long time. However, God has not destined us to remain in despair forever. And if we turn to God in our time of distress and remember God's acts of goodness in the past, we can emerge from grief strengthened with a renewed faith in a God who is mighty to save. Okay, that wasn't very memorable. That was a long sentence. But I hope we can get the essence of it as we go through this passage and you can understand what I'm trying to say here. Let's look back into the text. And we're going to go through this as best we can in the time that we are allotted through the text to see what the psalmist is saying. Now, the first thing I want you to take note of actually is the title. And sometimes you might be tempted just to glance over these titles as if they're meaningless. But I I think there's some value to be had in reading the title that we have. It says... For the choir director, for Jeduthun, okay, and you and you just might substitute for some guy, okay. That might not mean anything to you for blah 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 because you don't know who Jeduthun is, okay. But I want you to to stop here and and I want you especially to notice what comes next because this is going to be important and even the Jeduthun part is going to be important, okay. Normally we expect these psalms to be written by David. So that when you come to it, you expect it to be of David, of David. We see the Psalms and we're thinking it's the Psalms of David. But actually you look here and you find it's not a Psalm of David. It's a Psalm of Asaph. 
And, and, and if you're like me, when I came to that, I was thinking, oh, it's, that's kind of a little disappointing. Uh, yeah, I like the Psalms of David. I thought it was written by David. This Asaph guy, I don't know who he is. You know, that doesn't mean anything to me. Okay? And, and sometimes we can just treat these that way. Oh, it's not David's psalm. Somehow it's a lesser one. But that's not the case at all. For one thing, it's not the human authors, right, that matter when we read the psalms. It's God. God is the inspirer of all the scriptures, no matter who wrote it. Because that's, that's one thing. But Asaph wasn't just any old person. We, we might treat his name as if it just said, written by Bill or Bob or something. Like, we don't know who Asaph is. But in, in fact, and I was surprised to learn this, that there are words in Scripture written about who this Asaph fellow was. And I think that's important. If we were to go back to First Chronicles 6.39, and you don't have to, you can stay here, we find that he was the son of Berechiah. And in First Chronicles 25.1 and 2, it says, David, together with the commanders of the army, set apart some of the sons of who? Asaph, Heman and Jeduthun, for the ministry of prophesying accompanying by harps, lyres, and cymbals. Here's the list of men that performed this service. Verse 2, it says, From the sons of Asaph, Zachar, Joseph, Nenathion, Azarelah, I don't know how to say that name, but forgive me. The sons of Asaph were under the supervision of Asaph, who prophesied under the king's supervision. So there are some neat things we actually see here, even in the title, that this Asaph individual wasn't just anybody. He was like the chief musician for David. And to bring it into more real terms, um, think of the songs that you enjoy singing, whether here at church or maybe on Christian radio or whatever. Songs that are some of your favorite hymns or spiritual songs. Um, think about John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. Maybe his words speak to you a lot. Or maybe you like some of the hymns of, of Fanny Crosby, who wrote Rescue the Perishing. Or Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. Or if you're into some of the more modern worship songs, maybe you like people like Chris Tomlin or, or somebody like Matt Redman or Keith and Kristen Getty who wrote How Great Is Our God or Ten Thousand Reasons or In Christ Alone. You see, if you can think of some of your favorite songs, they're, they're songs that don't just have uh, nice lyric, excuse me, nice melodies to them, but you enjoy the lyrics as well. They speak to your heart in some way. Okay? Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a forced taste of glory divine. Or, or, you know, you, you never let go. That's another Matt Redmond song. Or, or in Christ alone, you know, um, no guilt in life, no fear in death. These, these songs speak to us. And what I want you to see is that this Asaph individual was the Chris Tomlin of his day. Okay? He was the main worship leader for David. If, if, they had, if they had iPods back then, he'd be on your playlist. Okay? You'd be buying his records, his albums, okay? his songs. He was the main composer for David. He was the worship leader of the time. If you're listening to Christian radio back in the BC time, he would have been on the radio. Okay? He was the main guy. And and just like the modern worship songs of today or the hymns that you love, the thing we appreciate about them is not just that they have good tunes, although I imagine uh, th these were put to song and we've lost what the tunes were, but also we enjoy the, the sentiment behind them, the words that are being conveyed, the feeling. We get the sense from some of our favorite songs that the authors understand the human condition, and they speak to our, our situation in times of need or in times when we are down. So it is with Psalm 77. But this just isn't Bob the writer, okay? This is a guy who understood these things, and this is what he did. He wrote these songs, and God inspired him to write this particular one to speak to a particular human condition. So let's go in, and with that understanding... 
Okay, I want to get that out of the way. Let's go on to verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 77. The question that this particular writer is going to deal with is how does a person deal with grief? How do they cope with extreme difficulty in their life? How does a person come to God about it? And how do you emerge from it? That's what we'll learn here. And so he starts in verse 1. My voice rises to God, and I will cry aloud. My voice rises to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. In the night, my hand was stretched out without weariness. My soul refused to be comforted. So here right off the bat, we learn the first step that Asaph takes us to when trouble comes to him. He is speaking as a man who is in the midst of a very deep and dark situation. And he's going to guide us through it, through this song, through this psalm, as to how we can deal with grief in our life. He prays. That's what he does. He prays. He says, in the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. So when he prays, he's very real about it. And we see as we read through it, this is not some sort of neat hands folded, let's sit and thank the Lord for our food kind of prayer. When verse 1 begins, we see that Asaph is already in the midst of his anguish. His heart is a wreck. His body is worn out. He is already deeply troubled by something serious. And he doesn't say exactly what that is, but I think that's on purpose, so that we can apply this to a multitude of different situations that we find ourselves in. We don't know what was troubling Asaph at the time, but we can see that wherever he is in life, He is in the midst of something serious, something difficult. And we can see that's reflected in his prayer. So that he's just not sitting down and praying in a very methodical way. He is in anguish. And you know, when you and I say our prayers at night on a normal day, maybe you pray silently to yourself. Not this individual. He is crying out to God, it says. Twice it says that his voice is raised up to the heavens. And let me ask you. Are you somebody that normally prays silently to yourself on a normal occasion? I'd just like you to think about in your own mind, what would it take for you to go from praying silently to all of a sudden out loud? Have you ever made that transition? Do you normally pray, you know, every day just kind of silently to yourself? Think about a situation that would bring you to a point where you would actually start praying out loud if you don't normally do that on a regular basis. We see that that's where this particular person is. Have you ever been in a situation where you're in such distress that you no longer sit neatly in a seat, praying quietly, but you might fall on the floor, maybe fall over on your bed, or maybe literally cry out to God? Have you ever gotten to such a place where your prayers looked more like that than like this? And if so, you can identify with where the psalmist is coming from. Have you ever spread out your hands on the floor or maybe across your bed with your face down on the carpet or maybe on your pillow? I can tell you I've been in that spot before. Can you think of a time when you have? Prayer looks very different in those times, doesn't it? Asaph says here that when he prayed to the Lord in verse 1, in the night his hands were stretched out without weariness. In other words, he was in such distress that he fell down on his face before God, stretched out his hands, and prayed all through the night. When he says, without weariness, he's not saying, I'm not weary. Of course he's weary. What he's saying is, I am so weary that I am praying and praying all night, and my body won't even let me go to sleep. 
I keep praying without ceasing. It's, it's not even up to me. I'm in such, such distress. Tears are running down my face to such a degree. My face is on the floor. I'm crying out to God over and over without a response that I just can't sleep. It's not even in my power to do anymore. Without even becoming weary of prayer, I am just naturally doing it because I have no other choice. And he says, my soul refuses to be comforted. So you see, no matter how long he prayed, he was still troubled. And you know, when trouble comes to us, we are first told that we should pray about it, right? Philippians 4, 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And we can say for sure that is what Asaph does here. Immediately from the start of the psalm, and that's what we're supposed to do as well. I'll tell you that the friends I have appreciated most are the ones who listen to me when I'm going through a difficult situation. They hear me out. They allow me to, to get out everything that's in my mind and in my heart. And at the end of that, they, they encourage me by saying, Dave, have you prayed about it? And especially in times where I haven't, that's where I appreciate that, that reminder, even that rebuke, the most. We are commanded by God to pray about every situation that comes to us, and especially those that really trouble us as we follow the example of Philippians 4.6. Hopefully, you've had family or friends encourage, encourage you to do the same. That when they hear of your troubles, when you have a friend that you know will listen to you, at the end of that, they will say, have you prayed about it? And if you have, maybe they will encourage you to pray with them as well. They will pray for you. There are people who encourage us to pray, and that's a good thing. But also, I'm sure you can think of times where there are people who are less, less empathetic to hurts. They might rush you through the story that you're telling. And at the end, they might just say, yeah, well, have you prayed about it? And maybe you have. You say yes. And then maybe in, in patience, they say, well, then why are you still down about it? Okay, well, if you've prayed about it, Philippians 4, 6 says pray about it. And, and if you've prayed about it, then why are you still so down? Why are you troubled by it? You see, some unfortunately confuse prayer with a magic spell. They treat it like a quick fix, a formula that you could just open up this spell book and, and read off a certain prayer or, or recite a prayer to God and boom, the problem goes away. And we see that prayer is not meant as a once and done fix for all problems, but rather is a continual calling out to God and a process of seeking the Lord's help in times of trouble. It's not meant to be, a, if you say the correct things in the correct order, your anguish is, is immediately removed kind of solution. And just if, if, in case you're doubting that, I just want you to think of the example of Jesus. He prayed for hours on end in the Garden of Gethsemane just before his death. You, you understand, he was the Son of God. Okay, we can't claim that. He was the Son of God and Jesus did not just pray a simple prayer that took about ten seconds and immediately have peace about the whole thing. We know from the Scriptures He prayed for hours and continually went back to His disciples, pleading with them to pray along with Him. So if the Son of God couldn't just recite a simple prayer in hopes of fulfilling Philippians 4, 6, as some understand it to be, wrongly, and, and just have His anguish solved, His problems solved, his fears taken away in an instant, then why would we expect the same thing from us? And we see here, as we're reading Psalm 77, that that's not the kind of prayer Asaph prays. He's not just coming to God expecting to pray something quick and have everything removed from him. And in fact, we find that that doesn't happen. 
We, we are encouraged to remember the second half of Philippians 4, which is verse 7. And it says, And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And that's true. That is definitely true. But we learn something about how prayer works here. And that we shouldn't expect prayer to just be this once and done thing that takes about five seconds we're done. We have the peace of God come over us. No, that's not how it always happens. Sometimes God grants us that. But sometimes it involves a wrestling. It involves us continually praying before God over and over again as Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed for hours. Asaph is praying for hours. You can tell just by his attitude. And when he does, then God grants that peace. But we, get, we understand a little better here that prayer can sometimes take a long time. That our crying out to God can sometimes be an anguishing t- a task, something that we do for hours and maybe even days on end before God grants that peace. And maybe that process of God giving us that peace isn't just an instantaneous boom like lightning strikes our head and we're feeling at peace. But maybe through the process of prayer that we establish that peace as we seek the Lord over and over and fall on our face before Him and ask Him to grant us that peace that He has promised. And we know He is faithful to do it. And we know from the psalm that He grants it to, psalm, to, to Asaph in Psalm 77. But I think understanding the way that he prays, helps us quote Philippians 4, 6, and 7 a little more carefully to people. We can affirm it as true, and we should. And it's something we should immediately go to in our minds when we are in anguish and when we are anxious. But we learn something very real about prayer through this psalm, about the length of it, and somehow, sometimes how it can uh, be a process for us to move through in prayer as we seek the Lord and seek his help. Let's move on through the passage. How else does the psalmist describe his grief? In verse 3 he says, I'm disturbed, and also my spirit grows faint. And in verse 4 he says, I'm so troubled I cannot speak. That's pretty intense, as you can see. Have you ever been so troubled that you didn't even feel like you could talk? You know, like when you get to the place where you just find yourself sitting in a room staring at a wall for a while. Have you ever done that before? Have you, have you ever found yourself in a place where your spouse or, you know, maybe your, your children or your parents or whoever might come over to you and say, hello, are you, are you still with us? I, I get that a lot, okay, but for various different reasons. I'm just drifty. If you know, any, if you know anything about it, there have been times where the teens have to go and snap their, hey, Pastor Dave, are you still here? Hello? You know, I had professors had to do that to me before. But I'm talking about in the case of grief. Have you ever just been so overwhelmed with something that you might, you know, maybe you get home from from work or you, you put the kids to bed and, and the weight of the day is just resting on you like this heavy weight and you just sit down and you just stare and you're unable to talk and people around you might notice and just wonder what, what's on your mind. Or maybe you go out for a drive and, uh, and you get to the end of, of that destination wherever you're driving to. Maybe it's to the store, maybe it's to someplace else and you realize by the end of the trip you haven't said anything. Your mind has just kind of been all over the place. Asaph says here, he, he is so troubled, he can't speak. He is unable to, to talk at all. You know, sometimes you can get to the place where you're in such deep distress. Maybe if there's something that's really troubling, you cry out to God, maybe literally with tears. And by the end of it, you've prayed every prayer that you can think to pray, and you're out of words. 
you're, you're, you're in grief and you're still crying. You're still in anguish. But you, you're, you don't know what to say. I think that's where he is. He can't even talk. It's possible to be so overwhelmed that you're brought to silence. He's paralyzed by his pain. What makes the situation worse is that Asaph begins to remember how things used to be. Verses 5 and 6 I'm at now. He starts to remember the days before his pain, the days before he was in despair. He says, verses 5 and 6, I've considered the days of old, the years of long ago. I remembered my song in the night. I meditate with all my heart. My spirit ponders. What does he ponder? Well, we'll get to that in the next verses. He'll say that he wonders why God has abandoned him. But you see, if we just backpedal a little bit for verses 5 and 6, he is saying, um, and maybe we can relate to this, that, that when he is in the midst of this painful situation, his mind is wandering and thinking back to days before this trouble ever came to him. And maybe you've done that before. You might get to a place where you're just out of options. You don't know what to do. You've prayed. You just feel like you're in an impossible situation to escape, or one that feels like it's never going to end. And then you think back to days before it all started. You remember days where this trouble wasn't upon you? Where you didn't have to deal with it? When life was good? And you long for those days. And for a moment you smile. And then maybe in an instant that smile disappears because you recall that now you're in this situation. Those days aren't aren't now. And, uh, And it makes it harder. Asaph remembers the good days gone by, and that's the breaking point for him. Okay, so he's thought about all these things. He's in grief, he's in anguish, he's unable to talk. He's thinking about the days gone by, and he doesn't know how to deal with it any longer. So this is where he cries out to God. And this is where I think he is most honest with what he's really thinking. So on to verses 7 through 10. This is what he says. He says, Lord, will you reject forever? And will... He never be favorable again? Has his loving kindness ceased forever? Has his promise come to an end forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Or has he in anger withdrawn his compassion? Now I want you to pay attention. Because this is Asaph's lowest moment. As I said, he's distraught. He can't sleep. He doesn't have words to to express anymore. And here's the real question. How do you pray when you are at your lowest moment? What comes out of a person when he has exhausted all of his strength? There's no positive thinking left, and they're broken completely. Well, I can tell you that when Asaph gets to this state, he finally just comes clean with God. He becomes honest and raw in his prayer. And he comes to God sincerely in search of answers. He essentially says, Okay, God, I need to know, are you going to reject me forever? Because it really feels like it. Will you ever show love or favor to me again? Because it feels like you've abandoned me. I know that you have promised to rescue me, but has that promise come to an end? Because I've been waiting for you to save me, and I'm still in despair. Have you ever gotten to the place where you've prayed like that? You try to keep the faith. You try to say the right things. You know, you're you're trying to be very careful to not question what God is doing. And you're trying to be controlled and say, you know, maybe I'm misunderstanding something here and and maybe that's the problem. But maybe at some point you just you just break. You break down and you've lost all ability to understand or comprehend your situation. And then that's where our true feelings come out. I tend to think that these were the things that Asaph 
had been pondering all along, but was just afraid to say. And we can understand why. For under normal circumstances, we know that we shouldn't question God's goodness. We know how we should be thinking. We know that God is sovereign. We know that God is in control. We know that God works out all events for the good of those who love them. We know these things. And the people who go through these kinds of despair often know these things too. It's not that we don't know them. It's that the difficulties of life are coming to a head with them to such a degree that we just don't know how to make sense of it all. And it's becoming increasingly difficult to put those things together. When the difficulty goes on or life gets worse, stress piles up, sometimes we can get to the place where we just call out like Asaph does, God, what does this mean? Will you reject me forever? Has your love ceased forever? And my question to you is, should we ask those questions? Is, is this something we should be doing? How do we understand what he's praying? Well, first I should say that should is a bit too strong of a word for me in this case. I don't think we should ever set out to question God's goodness. I don't think I, I'm comfortable telling you that this is how we should start our conversation or seek to go about it from the beginning. Obviously, the best thing we can do in any situation is to follow God's advice in Proverbs 3.5. And these are powerful words. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. See, God is always good. God can always be trusted. It's important to remember that no matter how bad the situation is that we go through, that God does say to us in Isaiah 55, 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. That's basically the point of the end of Job. And I think it's it's important that we guard against this kind of thinking that says, in our prayers, we can just let God have it and just question him however we want. I think the book of Job speaks pretty highly against that. And I'm sure pastor is going to get into that in a great deal where we don't just have this freedom to just go and say, God, what are you doing? You're messing my life up. You're getting everything all wrong. I want you to answer to me. See, that that goes a step further than I think what we're seeing here with the example of Asaph. And when Job gets very close to that, God answers him. And God says, all right, Job, you want to you play this game? Okay. Okay, we're going to see who's the wisest. No, you've, you've started the conversation. I'm going to end it. And God, that's one of my favorite sections of the Bible. I just got to confess where God just lets Job have it. Not because I like to see Job in anguish, but just because it's a good reminder for me. Who am I to question what God is is doing, And we need to keep that in mind as we come to God asking these types of questions. But with that being said, I think it's also good to note that God extends much grace to those who are hurting. I believe God gives us a measure of freedom for us to cry out to him. And yes, even to be honest when our situation doesn't seem to make sense. Why do I say that? Well, first and foremost, because of Psalm 77. You understand that these psalms were written for our guidance. You can even see in the title, it was written for the community. This wasn't just some out-of-control guy who just, you know, was praying in the moment without thinking about what he was saying. This was written after the fact. This is carefully worded and thought out and written for the community. That's why that title is there. It's meant for worship. So it was, it was thought out as such. And God has intended these psalms to be models for us in our own struggles. That's, that's one thing. Okay? Um, but also we have the example of Jesus Christ, where he calls out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God, Jesus Christ has 
never sinned. We know that. He never sinned in his lifetime, and yet he was able to ask that question. And I think that shows the limits of where we are are able to go in our prayer. We are able to call out when God is doing something in our life that we just don't see or understand and say, God, it feels like you have forsaken me. What's going on? Where are you? It seems like you're not present. That's the important distinction. It's important because um, we don't want to cross over into that line where we start to question God's goodness or question thinking that we somehow know better than, than him. But we do see that there's some freedom here. And, and Asaph stops right where he should in asking God, what are you doing? They might seem like dangerous questions to ask, but I think they can ultimately help us emerge from our grief. Because these questions truly reveal what's in our heart. When we finally are honest with ourselves, it's then that we realize just how foolish these questions really are. Think about Asaph's train of thought. He was going through something difficult. And so gradually over time, as he prayed and he didn't see things getting any better, he begins to wonder if God is really there. And he got to the place where he couldn't take it anymore. And in despair and frustration, he says in verse 8, has his loving kindness ceased forever? Has his promise come to an end forever? You see, that's how he feels. He feels like God is never going to come to his aid. And yet, if we look at the other side of that question, how ridiculous is that verse, really? I mean, think about what he's saying. God, are you never going to love again? Are your promises going to end forever? Does this mean that you're really going to stop making good on your promises that you eternally made in the past, all because I'm going through a temporary difficulty that I'm too blinded to see how you're going to work it out. See, when we phrase it that way, you see how silly that sounds. The answer, of course, is absolutely not. I mean, how short-sighted is that? Because I am going through a rough spot in life. Therefore, that invalidates God's goodness for all eternity. How ridiculous. And listen, here is where the turning point of the story happens. Asaph, I think, he stops and realizes just how silly these questions are. And it's because he brought the question up that I think he can stop and reflect on what he just said. God, are you going to stop making good on your promises forever? Wait a second. That doesn't, that doesn't sound right. God stop on his promise forever just because I'm going through this? Verse 8. This is the turning point of the, of the passage. Star this verse. However, you, But I, I have to correct it for you in just a second, so we'll explain. Verse 8 says in the NAS, if you have an NAS, it says... Has his loving kindness ceased forever? Has his promise come to an end forever? Absolutely not. How does he know? Because God has proven himself faithful over and over again. And he, I'm sorry, the key verse is verse 10. I just read verse 8. Verse 10. So if you just wrote in pen, I just messed you up. Sorry. Verse 10. Verse 10 is where Asaph's attitude changes, where he does a complete 180. Okay. And if you have an NAS, I am sorry to say that the key verse, what I view as the key verse of this passage, is completely botched by the NASV. I'm really sorry to say that, but I think after I read a bunch of different translations, it does the worst job of translating it. It's the least helpful for us to understand what's going on. In verse 9, Asaph questions God if he has left him forever. And then now, in verse 10, um, it says in the NAS... Then I said, it is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. 
It is the grief that the right hand of my most, the Most High has changed. I don't even know what that means. Okay, but, but let's bring you to a better translation of that. If you have an NIV, then this is good. Let me read it out for you, and, and this will be much better. And if, you, if you're the kind of person who writes in your Bible, I would write in the margin the way the NIV translates this, because this is far better. It makes much more sense, and it, and it brings a great turning point to this, this chapter. Verse 10 in the NIV says, Then I thought, to this I will appeal. The years of the right hand of the Most High. Okay, if you're writing that down, this is what it says. Then I thought, to this I will appeal. The years of the right hand of the Most High. To this I will appeal. The years of the right hand of the Most High. That is far better than the way the NAS puts it. Okay. And this is what it means. Asaph was previously only thinking in very narrow terms. He was coming at his grief and trying to understand the larger questions of the universe. Where is God? Does he come to the help of man? All those things from the perspective of his own limited perspective. It was, it was only in this limited time where he was examining his own heart, what, what was going on in his limited time frame from his perspective that he was asking these questions. But then when he realizes how silly his questions are becoming... God, are you going to forever forget your promises and just stop now because I'm going through this difficulty? Then he realizes that he's coming at it from the wrong perspective. He says, you know what? To understand what's going on here, I'm going to appeal to this. To the years of the right hand of God. Not to my years. Not to my perspective. I'm not going to think about things from the way I'm looking at it. But I'm going to think about it from God's perspective. Rather than just look at the few weeks or months or years that this problem has been going on in my life, that's a limited time in eternity. I am going to instead appear, appeal to the years of the right hand of God Almighty, which is eternity. I'm going to look back at all of the wondrous things that God has done in eternity past. And we see that that time frame is much greater than his own limited perspective. The key here in understanding where this turning point takes place is to understand his change in perspective. Prior to this verse, he is looking only at his own years, his own perspective, his own time of trouble. And he says, aha, wait. The way I can understand if God is really with me, if God is really going to rescue me, is to start thinking in grander terms, to think about what God has done throughout eternity. I'm going to appeal to the years of the right hand of God Almighty. That's what is what causes him to turn his his perspective around. And so we see in verse 11 through 20, this is where he goes. And this is all he needs to complete the psalm. The rest of the chapter is going to be devoted to um, thinking upon what God has done in the past. To thinking upon the years of the right hand of God Almighty. Verse 11 through 20 says, so I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength among the peoples. You by your your power have redeemed your people. The sons of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you and they were in anguish. The deeps trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth a sound. Your arrows flashed here and there. See, it's, it's reflecting on just how mighty God is. 
All these miraculous things, these amazing things that our Lord can do. Your way was in the sea and your paths in the mighty waters and your footprints may not be known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Here's the real significance for you and I. If you are ever in despair and begin to ask these questions yourself, has God abandoned me? Is he really listening? I would encourage you to think about the deeper questions beyond your own grief. Ask yourself, are you really saying, God, I feel like you have abandoned me. God, I feel like you don't care. God, I feel like you are never going to act. God, have you decided to leave me all alone? God, do you not even care if I die? God, do you not even care about rescuing your child? Are those the things that are really in your mind? And maybe you might say, yes, actually, those are the things I'm thinking. And to which I would say, remember who it is you're talking to. How long have you been alive, really? Have you been alive 10 years, 20, 30, 50, 70 maybe? How long has God been around? God's been around for infinity. You've been around a short time. He invented time. Think about that. And long before your great, great, great grandparents were even breathing air, God was creating air. God was creating the earth for people to live on. Thousands of years before you were born, God was splitting the Red Sea in two. Like it was, like it was some puddle that a child steps in and the water just split to the left and the right. Before you ever had your problems, God was knocking over the walls of Jericho for his people so that he could make good on his promise to give them the land that he promised them long ago, even through Abraham. Before you were ever in misery, God was providing for his people and watching out for them time and time and time again. So I ask the question again. Has God all of a sudden decided to abandon his people? All because I can't see how he's working in my own situation? Absolutely not. Listen to me. God is here. God is with you. He has not left you or forsaken you. Just as he promised. He has proven himself faithful for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Just to show you that even in your darkest night, you can still trust him to bring you through. When you are in despair, remember... That's what I'd encourage you to do, just to remember. Remember the great lengths God has gone to show you that He is here for you. He has not abandoned you. He is mighty and strong to save you from whatever situation you find yourself in. Psalmist says, I shall surely remember the deeds of the Lord. For what God is great like our God? For you have made your strength known to your people. And I know he will rescue me as well. That's real comfort. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these encouraging words. 
that we find in the Psalms. Thank you for inspiring your word and leaving it for us so that we have these models to follow when we find ourselves in great despair. God, help us, first of all, to come to you whenever we have a trouble that's weighing us down, that's bringing us to our knees. Help us to call out to you. And God, if we don't get an immediate peace, God, help us not to quit. Help us to realize that Asaph prayed for a long time. Our Lord Jesus prayed for a long time. And there was great anguish in his soul. But God, beyond that, help us to trust your promise that if we bring these things to you, that you are faithful and just, and that you can provide peace to our hearts and help us get through them. God, help us to remember that when we are in our lowest moment and we begin to question whether you are good or not, whether you've abandoned us or not, to recognize just what we're saying. And instead of looking at our own situation, to turn to you, to appeal to the years of your hand and the ways, oh, the many ways, Lord, that you have delivered your people and provided for them. And may we emerge, Lord, confident that you are at work, that no matter what we see with our eyes, you are always looking out for us and caring for us and providing for us and supplying us the strength that we need through your Holy Spirit. May we leave with a greater trust in your hand. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.